Hey. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Hey, I'm Lucas. And I'm Jesse. And this is Double Blind. Every week, Lucas and I share the scientific breakthroughs that interest us most. No BS, no buzzwords, no clickbait. Just the meat of the research and what that means for the future. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it's going to be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind... Brain to text, reconstructing speech directly from neurological activity. And radioactive bacteria, cleaning up uranium with microbes. Jesse, why don't you get us started? Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about the brain again today, which, as you know, is one of my favorite areas. I do know that, yes. Yeah, so uh, let's just start off with what this is. Researchers in the U.S. have developed what they call a brain-to-text system. Okay, that sounds like sci-fi. It sounds totally sounds like the future. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into what the heck this means, uh, but the basic idea is that they found a way to convert brain signals to the written word. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, pretty that's, that's awesome. So let's look at what they actually did. Sometimes you actually need to take advantage of other things going on in order to get the research done you need to do. Uh, and this is kind of a neat example of that. Okay. For this study, they needed to actually implant electrodes on the surface of patients' cerebral cortexes. Whew. All right, that sounds a little invasive. Yeah, so they used seven epileptic patients who volunteered for the study who were already undergoing clinical treatment for their epilepsy, which involved already invasive procedures with the brain. Okay, so did they already have the electrodes, or is it just that they were already putting something in their in their brains? Yeah, they were already doing invasive um, brain stuff. Okay, so may as well throw the other thing in there while you're, while you're in there. Okay, sure. So they volunteered to participate in the study, for which the researchers placed an electrode array on the surface of their cerebral cortexes. Okay. Cerebral cortex is where a lot of speech occurs, so it's the main area that we're want, wanting to look at in this case. Okay, and that's the uh, that's like the wormy spaghetti part of your brain, right? The the surface, right? Yes. Okay. Exactly. Cool. So this particular method of getting signals from the brain is called electrocorticography, or ECOG for short. ECOG. This is different, of course, from fMRI, which is functional magnetic resonance imaging, in that this is invasive. So this involves actual electrodes on the brain as opposed to go into a tube and we'll scan you from the outside. Right. So the electrodes that are used in this case are platinum iridium electrodes. They're about four millimeters in diameter. Uh, so they're embedded in silicon and the distance between each electrode is about 0.6 to 1 centimeters. So as you can tell, they were placed really close together and that let us have a really high resolution spatially so we can capture a lot of detail as to what's going on in each place. They also captured in a lot of detail temporally. So they recorded at 9,600 hertz, which means oh, wow. <laughs> 9,600 samples per second. Yeah. Um, which is a pretty high rate, and that enabled them to get really high detail as to what was going on. Right. And I, I would assume that each sample would be a charge at each electrode. Yes. And therefore, they could take that, extrapolate all those points, and get some sort of map of electrical mm -hmm. charge over the surface of your brain? Exactly. Okay, cool. Totally. That's exactly right. So what they did is they got patients to read aloud, um, and then the ECOG signals were recorded. They, they were not looking for identifying words in the brain here, but rather phones. 
Um, so not not the things we used to call each other, but rather what we used to call out to each other. Yeah, I was going to say. These aren't cell phones. Phones in linguistics refer to the single sound that a human can vocalize. Okay. So, wait, does then like a word, if I say a word, is that does that consist of many phones? Yeah, the word is full of phones. Phones are those smallest units of sound that we can make. Right, so less than a syllable. Less than a syllable. Okay. Mm. Oh, so they're the, they're the sounds that come from a single letter, almost. Kind of. I'm, I'm not a linguist at all. I know nothing about linguistics. Yeah, so the important distinction is between a phone and a phoneme. The phone is, a, is the smallest unit of sound we can make. Okay. And a phoneme is the smallest unit of speech. What's the difference between those? Well, phonemes are specific to language. So a phoneme is a small enough unit that if you change between two different phonemes, it changes the meaning of the word. Okay. So, for example, an M and an N sound going M versus N are very similar phones in terms of the sounds being made. And in English, they're distinct phonemes. Oh. Okay, so a language can choose whether or not to distinguish totally between sounds and whether or not that should change the meaning of something. Yes. So I don't have a specific example of this, but if you use a word that has M in it and then you change that to an N, it'll change the meaning of the word. In some languages, those sounds might not really matter, the difference between them. Right. Whereas, you know, in some other languages, the the tone or the pitch that you use when pronouncing something affects the meaning. That's a little crash course in, in that part of lingu- linguistics. The key thing is here that we're looking for phones, those individual units of sound that are being made. Right. Interestingly, the the content that the participants were asked to read were political speeches, like the Gettysburg Address, children's stories, and my personal favorite here, fan fiction from the TV show Charmed. That is an interesting combination of stories. I have no idea why those specifically were selected, but hey, there you go. It's a little bit of variety. The participants were asked to read aloud from these documents while being recorded with the ECOG. Then the results were run through a bunch of computer algorithms. So they tried to figure out the most likely words based on context using a dictionary of possible words. Okay. And uh, looking at the most likely phone that was being used in each case. Make sense? Not entirely. Okay, so let's say, for example, you're trying to say the word bedtime. Okay, bedtime. So they're scanning... At a super high rate, they're recording this information, and I say aloud, bedtime. Now, the, the parts of the word bedtime are b, e, d, t, i, e, m, m, right? Mm-hmm. That's splitting it up into its phones. Um, and I'm, I may have gotten some wrong. I'm sure a linguist will correct me on that. But those are, at least right now, doing it on the fly, the, the phones I see in the word bedtime. Yeah. Those are being recorded with audio to, com- to compare to. But what we're getting from the ECOG is a bunch of brain activity. Right. So you're trying to just take that ECOG data, which is, you know, this ECOG thing that relates to bedtime and split it up into each of those. Yes. And so what they're looking at is they basically graph it over a period of time with probabilities on each of the different phones. Okay. And so if the study is successful and if they're getting good data, then when I form the B, the B, the B phone at the beginning of bedtime... Yeah. The probability of the phone that I'm thinking of or speaking being the B one spikes in the, in the chart on the ECOG. Right. And whether or not it's bedtime or bear. Yes. Like they're trying to go, hopefully, they're hoping that the probability will be the same. Exactly. The idea okay. is if they get enough of the phones right, they can then use the dictionary 
to determine what the most likely word is. It's just like an autocorrect. Exactly. It is just like an autocorrect. That never has errors. Well, of course, it does have errors. It has quite a few. Um, in this case, the phone error rates were just below 50%. Okay, that seems high to me. So yeah, that's a pretty high error rate, but it also means that out of a huge number of possible phones, they got it right 50% of the time, which is well above random. Yeah, for sure. It's not just choosing between two things. It's, oh, they got that it's the the b sound 50% of the time when it also could have been a, a hundred different other phones. Right. Um, and so what that means is when they're actually forming a word out of a number of phones, the error rate for the word was about 25%. Okay. So 75% of the time, they were able to actually determine the word that the person was speaking just by looking at the brain activity. Whoa, that's not not too bad. Yeah, and of course they were using the dictionary to do that, but that's what any future technology that was trying to read our minds would obviously have access to that. You'd take advantage of that resource for sure. Totally. Um, you need some heuristics somewhere in the system because it's, it's just difficult when you're working with that raw signal data. So interestingly, a couple of the samples and subjects were actually not used at all because there was not enough difference between the signals when they were talking and not talking. Oh, interesting. So they've got all these signals from the ECOG when someone's saying something, but I can see it would be an issue if the person stopped saying something and you get the same signals. Yeah, a couple of people had to be excluded from the study. And on the other side of it, uh, the the paper is full of mentions of subject seven. Damn it, subject seven. No, subject seven had an incredibly readable brain. For some reason, subject seven's results were way higher than everyone else's. And they don't really know why that is. And, and once again, just remind me, how many subjects were there in total? There were seven subjects. So sample size is small. Yeah. But out of the seven, one was really good and a couple were terrible. Yeah, there was one patient that had to be excluded from the study because the results just didn't work at all. And there were a couple of individual recording sessions that had to be excluded as well. Oh, okay, gotcha. So some people, it wasn't always, it was just sometimes. Exactly. To determine how successful these results actually were, they trained the system each time on all but one phrase of the subject's speech. So if they're reading the Gettysburg Address, they might use every line except the first line to train the system on how that person's brain synthesizes speech. And then they run and run the trained optimized system for that person on that first line to see how well it did. So what did they see? Basically, far better than random results, um, but still nowhere close to perfect. One interesting thing that they did find is that is sort of the t the timeline within the speech formation of what was going on in the brain. I thought this was kind of cool. So 200 milliseconds before a particular phone was produced, activity in Broca's area of the brain spiked. In, in sorry, which area? It's called Broca's area. Okay. And it's really important for speech planning. You may know Broca's area from a famous case where a man was suddenly unable to form words. He thought he was speaking perfect English, but nothing made sense. Oh. Um, it's a famous case study, and he had damage to Broca's area of the brain. Oh, okay. Um, so it's involved in that planning of what you're going to say um, and how, how it's going to come out. Then 150 milliseconds before actually vocalizing, the sensorimotor areas start to discriminate, which means they're showing a difference between the different phones that you could be making. Okay. Then between 50 and 0 milliseconds before the phone is vocalized, the differentiation is highest. So that's the point where it's most clear the difference between a couple of different phones. So what you're saying is, as my brain, you know, is, is leading up to say, ah, my brain goes... Okay, guys, this is the uh, this is the sound we're gonna make, and then another part of my brain goes, "Okay, we're gonna make this sound and not all the other ones." And then right before I say it, another part goes, "Okay, guys, no, seriously, this is actually the sound we're gonna make." And then I go, "Ah, 
Yeah, that's kind of what's happening. Um, exactly. And that process takes 200 milliseconds. It's a long time. It, it is kind of a long time. It's, I don't know. It's, I found my brain was faster than that. Interestingly, the, in the auditory region of the brain, which is focused on, obviously, listening and, and, and responding to auditory stimuli, um, the differentiation peaks 150 milliseconds after vocalization. Oh, okay. So that's me hearing myself. Basically, that whole process of you plan to produce a phone, you produce it, and then you receive the response that you created it correctly. That whole process takes 350 milliseconds. Right. And then my brain goes... Yes, you said, ah, good job, man. Or or it goes, yeah. oh, you actually said, bah, you're an idiot. Try again. Yeah. Like earlier when I was trying to say the word numbers and I kept saying numbers. <laughs> Presumably it was about, you know, 150 milliseconds after that my brain kicked me for doing that. Um, so what's particularly interesting about this study? Um, it's the first time we've ever tried to read continuous speech off of the brain. So... I wanted to quickly do a really fast history lesson and a timeline of this technology because we talk a lot about, you know, big breakthroughs and things that are happening right now. But it's cool to look at how long the process of development for a particular technology or area of research takes. Okay, sure. So obviously it's 2015 now uh, and we've just had this particular milestone of being able to read continuous speech with some degree of accuracy directly from the brain. The first study I found that investigated the patterns of speech perception using ECOG was in 2007. So that's when we started using this technology to investigate this thing. So then in 2009, a study proved that brain signals from speech regions of the brain could be used to synthesize vowel sounds when a paralyzed subject attempted speech. So this was on somebody who was completely paralyzed. Oh. Yeah, we were able to get vowel sounds that they were thinking. Right, and get some sort of communication from someone who couldn't otherwise communicate. Exactly. Studies in 2010 and 2014 were both precursors to this one, but just using phones. So not words or continuous speech, just phones. Right. In 2011, vowels and consonants were successfully discriminated in limited pairings. So that's now we're differentiating between the, the vowel phones and the consonant ones. So we're at four years ago currently. Yep. And then in 2014, a study was able to identify a large set of phones from isolated words. Okay. So that's speaking a word and being able to identify the phones in that word. And so now here we are in 2015 and we're able to, with a 75% accuracy within words, figure out what somebody is saying by monitoring their brain. Radiation. Radioactive materials. They've got they've got a lot of uses. Some of them are pretty bad. Some of them are pretty good. I think there's there's like a spectrum which has like nuclear weapons at one end and then generation of electricity somewhere in the middle, which has, you know, pros and cons. And it's got like medical isotopes at the other end, which I think are pretty much okay. considered to be good things. Right. So, I mean, we need radioactive materials. But one of the biggest issues with them is how do you clean them up? Yes. Particularly if you weren't very good with handling them in the first place. <laughs> so substances like uranium are kind of an environmental nightmare. They can make it into soils. They can be transported through groundwater. They make pretty much anything they touch instantly extremely toxic. Right. And, I mean, are, are very efficient at killing you. And they're hard, if not impossible, to remove. Yes. I mean, now we're getting a lot better at mining and processing radioactive elements in, in ways that are, you know, cleaner and are more contained. Mm -hmm. But 
I mean, we're not perfect. And for a really long time, we weren't very good at it. And yet we still made a lot of things which used radioactive elements. There's a lot of radioactive mess around the world. And we don't really know what to do with it. Right? If you've got a bunch of soil that can kill you, and the water that flows through it can also kill you. It ain't for planting pumpkins. Yeah, how do you fix it? <laughs> so recently, there have been some promising results of a somewhat untraditional option, which is that you leave it to bacteria. Oh, cool. So this was a team of researchers from Rutgers University. They were examining bacteria in the soil at a former uranium ore mill in Colorado. Okay. So this was a facility where uranium ore was brought to, it was mined before, and it was brought here, and it was processed and purified. And the uranium from this particular place was used in the production of nuclear weapons. And the mill has left quite a mess. The groundwater, you know, is radioactive. It's unsafe to drink. It would be bad if you drank it. Yep. However, the official plan with this site, and the site has kind of become a bit of an experimental area where they're monitoring it very, very closely and conducting experiments when it comes to environmental cleanup. So at this site, the expectation was that the groundwater would flow through, you know, the ground and would flush and dilute the uranium contamination, you know, move it away, slowly clean the site. Sure. But this, this has been much, much slower than expected, and it hasn't really been clear why. Okay. So these researchers, they took samples from the site, and they wanted to look at the bacteria, the microbes in them. Okay. So wait, why, why were they looking at the bacteria in the first place? Right. So they were suspicious that the bacteria might have something to do with this. They were suspicious that because the groundwater doesn't appear to be transporting the uranium, the bacteria might have something to do with it. Okay. So they took all these samples, and they gradually added uranium, and they let them sit, they let the bacteria do their thing, and they found that... Well, first of all, if they added too much uranium to it, it would pretty much kill everything and the bacteria wouldn't do very well at all. That was totally expected. Fair enough. But they found a sweet spot where the bacteria actually did the best. So they found that if they added a little uranium, the bacteria did better than adding no uranium or much more uranium. Okay. So what do you mean did better? So they counted cells. Okay. So the, they, they divided at a higher rate. They, were, they thrived more with uranium around? Exactly. They thrived more with uranium around. Okay, we're talking some superhero origin stuff here. Yeah, this was a very interesting result. This is, yeah, Superman bacteria here. And what they did is they took the samples from that sweet spot where the bacteria did the best. Yeah. Assuming that the bacteria present in those samples were the ones that were thriving on uranium. Okay. And they managed to isolate the bacteria which was the big result in this study, was isolating this particular species of bacterium that does well with uranium. And they found that the bacterium was actually respiring the uranium. So what does respire mean? So I saw a lot of stories covering this that said the bacteria was breathing uranium, which is kind of true and kind of not. I mean, it's not like us. These bacteria don't have lungs. Right. This is cellular respiration. This is the process of undergoing a reaction to get a bit of energy out of it for the cell. So this is their, like, absorbing these particles and then doing something with them, and then that gives them energy. Kind of, yeah. When our cells respire, what happens is they add electrons to oxygen atoms. Uh, Chemists call this being reduced. The opposite would be being oxidized. Okay. If you add electrons to something, that oxygen's being reduced. So they found these bacteria can choose. They can either reduce oxygen like we do, 
Yeah. Or they can reduce uranium. Oh, interesting. And all this means is they're using that atom as an electron acceptor. Now, to be clear, this is not the first study that has found this. In fact, the first study was in the early 1990s. It used to be thought that this process of uh, uranium being reduced, which they knew happened in nature, it was thought that this was a, just a natural process and a completely non-life related chemical reaction. Okay. But it's been found that bacteria can do this. However, we're only now just starting to understand how this can be a really important factor when it comes to cleanup of contaminated sites. Right. So what actually happens to the uranium? Well, that's the cool thing. When you reduce uranium, when you add an electron to it, something really magical happens. It becomes insoluble. Oh. Yeah. That means it's much more difficult for water to transport it. Aha. So the bacteria in the soil at the site in Colorado were doing a really efficient job of taking this uranium, adding an electron to it, and then making it less easy for the water to transport it, making it more insoluble. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. It is. So it had really important implications for the rate of water flushing the uranium away. Okay, so that initially it feels like that's a bad thing, right? Because the water was not doing what we thought it would do yeah but what is what does this mean in terms of like can we use that right well that's the big question now so this has important implications and it can be really good or really bad okay because soil contaminated with uranium is a bad thing yes we don't like that water contaminated with uranium is a really bad thing because water moves a lot faster than the soil does Mm -hmm. right You can take soil, you can dig it up, and you can deal with it. Yeah. Water is usually moving. You have to chase it, and you usually can't catch it. However, there's also a downside in a site like this. Like this one, they'd studied it well, and they'd figured that the groundwater would simply transport this uranium into a river. It would get diluted. It would be okay. It wouldn't be at toxic levels. And, you know, eventually, over the course of about 100 years, they estimated, the site could could be okay. Right. And particularly because this was a really widespread area of contamination, they found that, you know, the idea of digging up all the soil was impractical. Okay. Maybe that was just due to lack of funds or motivation, but it's not what they were planning to do. Fair enough. But either way, now now they have this immobile... Yeah, now they have this immobile uranium that's staying in the soils and not getting flushed away with the water. Uh-huh. So in this case, it appears the bacteria might be working against us. Right. So in the future, maybe bacteria could be used as a tool to help control the spread of contamination. Right. If you had, I don't know, maybe a very sensitive uh, aquifer, a very sensitive area, maybe you could seed the soil with bacteria that could attempt to slow the spread of uranium through one path Uh. and deal with it somewhere else. This is a ways off. Right. But it does help us better understand how the natural environment deals with substances like uranium. Right. And how really all life is having some sort of effect on processes like this. Really interesting. Yeah. Well, now that we know about it, hopefully we can find a way to use that to our advantage. Exactly. That's the goal. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, We have links to all the studies we discussed and more in this episode's show notes at doubleblindscience.com. We hope you enjoyed the two stories we selected for this week's news. Check back next week. We'll have two more coming at you. Um, did you see something in the news that you'd like us to cover? Maybe a headline that seems too good to be true or a story that no one's explained clearly enough? 
and give us a shout by email at stories at doubleblindscience.com or on Twitter at doubleblindci. Thanks a lot. What would a bacteria superhero be like? <laughs> bacteria superhero, I think, would just divide a lot. <laughs> just, just. <laughs> we do say like, super bug. So. Yeah, we do. It's true. It's great. Now it's not funny anymore. No, not really. Now it's just sad. <laughs>